Well, thank you all. I am wrapping up a series here on uh, purpose, God's design. So God's design. We've taken a couple Sundays and here we are at the last Sunday. So we're going to talk about God's design as it affects our purpose. Our purpose, our purpose for being here. Why God, uh, what God has to say about our purpose. Well, we are in a time and place, particularly a generation. So I'm seeing some of the younger generation out here. We're in a generation that is starved for a sense of purpose. People have gone through a, an educational system and a cultural system that is robbing us of a sense of purpose. So we now have, uh, a, we're a generation in to a, uh, an educational kind of, uh, let's see here if I can get to the first slide here. Oh. Hmm. Thank you, Joy. Uh, okay, we're a generation in to a legacy of aggressive atheism. So in the 80s, and that's when I was in college, I'll admit it, I was, I was there back then, the, the books of Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking persuasively declared that there was no design. That things that appeared as if they had a design, that biology uh, gave the appearance of design, actually were not designed. Dawkins concluded that a creator was not necessary to explain the history of life. A couple years later, Hawking's book seemed to explain the origin of the universe, the new law of quantum gravity. Uh, but both of these books, both, they sold millions of copies. They did a lot to set the tone for our schools and our universities in our last generation. So here we are almost 40 years on. Uh, both of these men were atheists. They were eloquent in their conclusion that the universe and life as we know it. And each of our own lives are the product of, as Dawkins put it, blind, pitiless indifference. So that's where the new atheists took us. A couple decades later, here, we'll see if, see if I can get this to work. Well, maybe Joy's going to have to help me out here. Okay, next slide. Popular movies. Okay, Dan's always up on the latest movie. I'm 20 years behind. These movies came out decades ago. Okay, uh, some of you older ones in the crowd have probably seen them. They introduced a whole generation to the question of if we can even be sure reality is real. Okay, we can't, if we can't trust our sense of reality, how can we know anything at all into our popular vocabulary entered? You remember the red pill and the blue pill? So where can you start on a search for purpose? without even being sure of the reliability of your own thoughts. About five years ago, so next slide please, Joy, it was publicly revealed, here's just uh, more recently, two Harvard scientists back in the 60s, they were paid to produce a review of research about the uh, effect of sugar. So their paper uh, was printed in the New England Journal of Medicine and influenced, as we now know, decades of nutritional guidance away from considering the dangers of the heart and role of obesity. Okay, Sugar Association, their response was, well, the ethical guidelines in that era didn't require us to disclose the secret payments, so we didn't. 
So here we are, science for sale. What can you depend on? Next slide. Okay, battered by these assaults on our foundation of reality, our generation is told by many, look within. Okay? But this is an ancient path, but in fact it's a dangerous one. Because if we search for happiness and let that guide us into what truth is, what if we find ourselves experiencing loneliness? What do we do with suffering or despair? This is a path that has led many to a dark, dark place. So looking without to science, looking, looking within, or at least their idea of science, uh, looking in within is not a sure foundation for a sense of purpose. Okay. Well, fortunately, here we are. Word of God. Let's, uh, let's turn to it and hear what the Bible says. Uh, next slide, please. Genesis 1. We'll start at the beginning. Okay, the beginning of the story. Okay, so the Bible is a coherent story. It has a storyline, and it starts at the beginning, right? The beginning of the story starts with God. God is the reference point from which everything else is derived. So without God, we don't know where to start or who we are. Adam and Eve's sin was to take on the prerogative of God. They chose to be, they chose to be their own gods. They would determine good and evil rather than obey the command of God. But initially, God created, uh, not, not a matter of, not just matter and energy. Okay. If you read the account of Genesis 1, and I've, I've read this chapter, I'm not going to read the whole thing right now, but I've read this chapter over and over this week. Uh, it is such a beautiful account. It's beyond just God creating everything, which in fact he did, but he designed it. It's crafted. It's beautiful. It is amazingly intricate. And it itself is filled with purpose. It's a design that points to a designer. So, the, the, the verb to create uh, that is used in Genesis 1 is always uh, the work of God. It's a fashioning of something new, fresh and perfect. Uh, finally, Again and again, Genesis 1 tells us that when it was done, it was good. Now, this is more than just like well-designed, uh, like a well-designed car. This is good in every sense because it flowed from God's own character. God himself is good. He's morally good. Everything that is conductive for life uh, is good and is part of God's goodness as reflected in his works. Okay, next slide. So here we are. God, the reference point, the start of everything. Nothing else is going to make sense unless we start with God. Created, design. His, the, the creation that we see speaks of God's design. And finally, it's good. There's a moral order to this earth, to this creation. Sure, all these things are marred by sin, but there is, as we look at God's 
design, there's a, and a, there's a moral order to this world. Okay. Well, that's the beginning of the story. But as we see in Genesis 3, sin comes into the world. Adam and Eve turn away, decide to be their own gods. They're going to take charge. They're going to make their own decisions. And from this flows disaster on the world. And the, the disaster reaches kind of an end point in, in the next scripture I'm going to turn to, which is Romans chapter 1. And Romans chapter 1 uh, speaks of the state of mankind once they've abandoned all of these three. So Paul assesses the state of the world, the state of mankind, with people who will not worship God. They refuse to bow the knee to God. And so they end up worshiping created things and other things, but not God. They uh, embrace a designerless world where random processes operating with indifference lead to everything that we see. But the problem with that is that viewpoint leads to being deluded about what's obvious. Romans chapter 1 says these people are deluded in their own minds. So it leads us down a path of delusion. And then finally, good. When people turn away from God as the standard of good, of his moral standards, Romans 1 is a long list of where that ends up. It's every vile and degrading action, every unrighteous behavior, every kind of thing that makes a world that you would not want to live in. That's what flows. Every kind of wickedness, Romans 1 describes it. This, this passage starts in Romans uh, 1.18 and, and goes beyond from there. So, but anyway, the arc of our big story here, okay? So the arc of the story begins at the beginning. God created and it was good. And then it goes on to the ruin of sin and the end point that it reached. But you know something? Today's sermon is, uh, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And, and we're going to talk about the next step in the story. Ephesians 2. Yep, thank you, Joy. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So God now, the next step in the story is God's not going to leave the world in a ruined state. He's not going to leave us in the grip of despair and hopelessness like Adam and Eve were after their sin. There's uh, going to be a, re- a redemption and a recreation of everything that God made. So that's what the, the arc of the scriptural story is starts off with God creation, sin's ruin, God's redemption, and now a recreation. So let's let's see those same elements here in Ephesians 2, uh, verses 8 and beyond here. Okay. For we are saved by grace through faith, 
And this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift. Okay? So without God's initiative, salvation would never have happened, would it? It was clear that we were not able to buy it. We, we couldn't procure it. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't do enough good deeds, religious works, or whatever to restore ourselves to a relationship with God. It had to be God's initiative. So that's what we read in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. It was God's gift, not from works. No one can boast about this. This took God to do it. For now, we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we could walk in them. Interesting, as you look at these words in Ephesians 2.10, particularly, I've highlighted them, but don't you see them coming out. So you've got God, the initiator, and now you've got, what are we? We're his creation. Same word. There, there now is God creating us, creating us anew. Again, it's the action of a God that is a God of purpose and design. Our lives are designed. They're, they're valuable. They're not, uh, random. They're the product of a designer God. The same designer God that made the amazing earth and created it and all the, the, the creatures and everything. This is the kind of design in God's handiwork. But it goes on. It's, it's not just a creation of God. We're his, interesting word, workmanship. Workmanship. That's, uh, the Greek word is poema. We actually get our word poem from that. Okay. It's a word that, uh, is not just ordinary work. Okay. It's, most of us go to the office, we write emails, we do things like that every day. That's, that's not poema. Okay. This is the work of a poet, possibly. Or, say, a master craftsman, if someone was fashioning something that was highly valuable, like jewelry or a crown, maybe if they were good at it, that their creation would be a poema, a a, a, a piece of workmanship. This is the word that God uses. He uses this word to describe his creation originally, and he uses it here. It's only actually used two places in the New Testament. One is in Romans 1, where he talks about people not, not re- rejecting his uh, what was obvious, the things he made. But now here in Ephesians 2.10, he uses it for God's work in his recreation of our lives. So what's the flow from this now onward? So we're, we're his, his creation, uh, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So there is God's purpose in this recreation for us. 
And they're not just works. They're, they're good works. They're works reflective of the goodness of God, aren't they? Just like God created things in the beginning, and they were good. So God's recreating things now, and they're good. They're in alignment with his own character. God's recreation of our lives is its good, it's wholesome, it's productive, it's fruitful. It's a, a, Jesus calls it in John 10, the abundant life. He says that that's the kind of life that he came to offer to his disciples, the people who would follow him. Okay, so God is a good God. So people often look at this, okay, good works. I mean, is this like building an orphanage somewhere? Well, it might be that. But actually, in uh, in the context, in the big picture of uh, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, it uses this word that he created these good works that we can walk in them. Where do we else do we see walking in the book of Ephesians? We see it in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And you know what chapters 4, 5, and 6 talk about? They talk about unity. That's the first thing that, that uh, Paul talks about in our, our walk, our living out of the goodness of God. We live it out in fellowship with one another. So the goodness of God is expressed, not It could be me going off and praying in my prayer closet. But in the context of Ephesians, Paul's saying, no, the the goodness of God in his recreation of our lives is primarily expressed through relationship with one another. It's a whole body activity. Chapter 4 of Ephesians goes on and talks about the Spirit giving gifts. Why does he give gifts? He gives gifts that we can give to one another. We serve one another with the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us. All of the gifts actually are designed to work together. Every gift is different. The gifts are necessary to work together. Each part of the body is gifted in a way that makes that part of the body indispensable. God's got a a mission for his people. And that mission for his people, that maturing of all of us to a mature man, again, in the book of Ephesians, is not just that each one of us, each little one of us becomes mature, although that's a good thing, but no, that it's become, we become mature together. This is actually a a co-maturing. This is a mature man that's the congregational maturity. That's that's what Ephesians is talking about here. So the outflow of God's recreation is not going to be just a solo change in me. It's going to be worked out in fellowship. And it's and then Ephesians goes on and you and you we preach through this book. I hope you remember it. Uh, it was wonderful because it's going to be worked out. What in the home, too, isn't it? It's going to be worked out in fathers raising their children, children obeying their parents, husbands loving their wives. All of those are part of this outflow of good that God wants to come out of his recreation of our lives. So it is a 
It is a wonderful story. And I've got to pause here and say, if you have not experienced God's recreation, God's gift of this new life, this abundant life, now's a good time to do it. I would love to talk to you about knowing Jesus Christ. Because without knowing him, this process isn't going to start. It's, it requires the presence of God by his Holy Spirit. When we are trust in Jesus Christ, he says the promised Holy Spirit is given to dwell in us. And that Holy Spirit uh, baptizes us into the body of Christ. So we become a special new way, unified one with one another and with other Christians around the world. Of course, I get to work with Christians in other countries, many people I've never met, and I am always excited about the fact that, hey, someday I'm going to meet brothers and sisters in heaven that I never got to meet on this earth, and there's going to be a lot of them. And that's really exciting to me. I really enjoy that future uh, blessing that I'm looking forward to. God wants you to be a part of that too if you don't know him yet. If you don't know God the Father through Jesus Christ, his son. What we're talking about here at the, the communion. He's made a way. He's paid the price. The door's open. But you have to trust him and it requires as as we saw in in the romans one it you're gonna have to turn away from being your own little god your own boss of your life a lot of people who look at creation and say i'm not willing to accept a creator They'll actually look at the evidence and some of them, some of them have honestly said, you know, I don't want there to be a God because I don't want to be accountable to a God. So let's not be like that. Let's not be so foolish that we can't see what God has done and confess our sins, our pride, our own following in the footsteps of Adam, wanting to not obey what God said, but find my own way. And I'm going to make my own decisions here. Well, I've, I don't actually own a copy of uh, Stephen Hawking's book. Uh, I don't actually, didn't actually go out and buy Richard Dawkins' book. But I did bring another book here that I would, I would love to commend. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a little bit out of it because it's so good. This is a, a book that came out also years ago, about 20 years ago, by Rick Warren. It's called The Purpose Driven Life. And this one has sold, I just checked it this morning, 50 million copies. How's that? 137 languages. And it's, it's worth it. It's a good, it's a good book. In fact... My own sister-in-law, who was raised in a secular home where parents didn't believe in the Bible, didn't believe in God's existence, and didn't go to church, she uh, decided that she was going to read this book 
And it's what led her to the Lord, was reading this book with a, with a friend. And she came to uh, give her life to Jesus Christ. And now, you know, years later, she's, she's walking with Jesus. Uh, she found purpose in her life um, in a special way. Okay, nerds, I gotta, I gotta bring this one up here. This, the, I, I am uh, talking about my relatives here this morning. I'm, I'm blessed. My, my father-in-law is a retired professor, and uh, you know, studied physics at Yale, and so he always keeps me in good books. So this one, this one was uh, one that he. Uh, sent to me and I read cover to cover. Uh, wow. The return of the God hypothesis. So if you want to dive into cosmology, biology, uh, cellular DNA and all that and have be up on the latest, much better than Richard Dawkins book. See me afterwards. Uh, this is a, this is, I'll lend it to you. It's a great book. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll turn now to a quote from Rick Warren here and, uh, and say this. Here's what Rick says. He says, it's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and imagine ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose, right? He was the creator and for his purpose. There was a design and it was a good one. It's a good plan. God has a wonderful, good plan for your life. Rick goes on, the search for the purpose of life has puzzled people for thousands of years. That's because we typically begin at the wrong starting point, ourselves. We ask self-centered questions like, what do I want to be? What should I do with my life? What are my goals, my ambitions, my dreams for the future? By focusing on ourselves, we will never reveal our life's purpose. And Rick goes on to talk about searching within and how that's not going to get you there either. It's going to require getting in touch with your creator and your recreator who wants to rebuild, recreate, restore the, the goodness of your life. He wants to lead you into the abundant life. Now that said, one of the commenters I read on this uh, Ephesians 2.10, very, uh, a lady who has a lot of uh, impact in my life. Uh, her name is Johnny Erickson Tata. And she contemplated this verse, God's plan for her life. And, you know, she's spent over 50 years now as a disabled, a paralyzed person since she was, as a teenager, uh, broke her neck in an accident. And she's come to realize that God is, in fact, 
creating something beautiful, meaningful, and that brings good to her and glory to God through her life, through her life on this earth. Isn't that amazing? I, I didn't say that. She did. She said it. She's lived it. She uh, is one of the amazing people. So I can assure you that the path of following Jesus Christ uh, and finding his purpose for your life, his design, his good path for your life may lead you through hardships, persecutions, difficulties of all kinds, financial trouble. I mean... Maybe, maybe here in the United States, we're going to experience persecution in the future. I don't know, but I know that in all of these circumstances, that Jesus Christ, when we surrender to him, his plan for us is eternally and profoundly good. He has a good and amazing design for, for our lives. So, thank you. Uh, we've got a wonderful song to close with. And uh, so Dan and Amy and the musicians are going to come up. And uh, while they're coming up, just let me pray for a second. They can, they can come on up here. Heavenly Father, we call out to you this morning. We want to know you better. We want to be transformed uh, not only our minds we want to understand, but we also want our affections, what we desire, what we love, what we follow. And we want our time and our talent, our treasure, our very lives poured out at your feet because you are worthy. And we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.